0: The end of 2020 gave way to monumental shifts in the landscape of illicit crime in Southern Africa. South Africa's Nelson Mandela Bay emerged as one of the most violent urban areas on a global level, and fluctuating international prices for gold as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic had massive impacts on the illegal parts of Zimbabwe's gold sector. You're listening to Africa and the Global Illicit Economy from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. This week, we're in Southern Africa. I'm your host, Lindim Tongana. Bay has filtered to Jutenhage, resulting in shooting and stabbing incidents in the industrial town. Concerned community members embarked on a march from Fourway in Rosedale to the Derek Ferreira Stadium to highlight the plight of gangsterism in the area. Eight gang-related murders have been reported in the area since the beginning of the year. Cape Town may hold the title of the most violent city in South Africa in the eyes of international media, but Nelson Mandela Bay is not far behind. Historically, while it is true that Cape Town has had a higher murder rate, Violent crime in municipalities like Nelson Mandela Bay is comparable to those experienced in Latin America, a region considered the most violent on Earth.
1: In 2017-2018, Cape Town had a murder rate of 70. That would be 70 per 100,000 people.
0: Rukshana Parker is an analyst at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime.
1: Whereas... Nelson Mandela Bay's 2018-2019 murder rates stood at 60. However, in Nelson Mandela Bay, violence is concentrated in particular neighborhoods to an even greater degree than Cape Town. For example, there are certain areas in Nelson Mandela Bay such as Bethelsdorp and Galvindale where murder rates have reached 79 and 124, respectively.
0: Rukshana, what are some of the factors influencing the perpetuation of violence in Nelson Mandela Bay?
1: These would include a long historical process of racial, social and economic exclusion, extreme poverty, high rates of unemployment, the acceleration of the local drug economy in the area, The growing availability of guns, presence of gangs and other organised crime groups, misgovernance present in the metropolitan government, and then also failing government responses. And all of these factors drive violence in the
0: area. Often when gangsterism and failed government exist in the same space, a complicated relationship between gangs and the community emerges. Is this the case in Nelson Mandela Bay?
1: Gangs have undoubtedly spread violence and instilled fear in the community. People in the community are terrified. But on the other hand, you also find that these very gangs that the community fears provide the community with income, protection and services. For example, gangs in Nelson Mandela Bay have reportedly purchased school uniforms for children in the community, paid for electricity, for medication, diapers, and have also been distributing food parcels. It has gotten to that level where members of the community have gotten to the stage where they actually don't know who to turn to. The level of misgovernance in Nelson Mandela Bay is the levels are extremely bad.
2: Turf wars have triggered a string of killings in the metro's northern areas as gangs battle for control of the drug trade. Police say that in the latest gang-related crime a taxi driver was hijacked at gunpoint and forced to drive his attackers to Bethelsdorp. When they arrived, the hijackers opened fire on a group of men standing on a street corner.
0: A distinct characteristic of gang violence in Nelson Mandela Bay is what is referred to as Chemorse gangsterism. Chemorse in Afrikaans is loosely translated as messy or trash in English. According to Rukshana, this form of gangsterism adds a new dimension to gang activity and its effect on the community.
1: Initially, gangs in the area would use violence for the purpose of intimidation, so as to consolidate territory, to enforce agreements, or for revenge killings, turf disputes, etc. Hamor's gangsterism, on the other hand, subverts this traditional understanding in that this form of gang violence is often random and targeted at ordinary civilians for the purpose of robbery or simply just to spread fear.
0: Who are the perpetrators of Khmer's gangsterism and how are they recruited into this activity?
1: Alarmingly, the perpetrators are mostly young children, some between the ages of 9 and 14, who are paid for their actions in small quantities of drugs. The reason that these children are motivated to work for Khmer's gangs are also different from the reasons that the youth would join your traditional street gangs. With your traditional street gangs, a youth would join the gangs because of the prospect of economic gain, or protection, or the sense of belonging. However, with Gamor's gangs, the children are primarily interested in acquiring drugs. And that's the main reason that they join the gangs.
0: The principal of a high school in Nelson Mandela Bay explained the extent of youth involvement in gangs to South Africa's SABC News. Yeah, listen, the, in the recent times we've had a spate of, of murders, a spate of attempted murders, where our youngsters have been exposed to huge trauma in terms of sk- killings uh, related to drugs and gangsterism. And of course, it is affecting our schools in as much as learners fear for their lives. Therefore, they either don't attend school Or they have to leave school early, don't attend afternoon classes and don't even attend sports events out of fear for their lives. So as a school committed to excellence in education, we uh, demand the safety of our kids, of our entire society, so that we are able to continue our work of educating our nation. Despite pleas for government intervention, violence in the area continues on an upward trend.
1: What also makes Nelson Mandela Bay's rate of violence so peculiar, especially in comparison to Cape Town, is the trajectory of the murder rates. So both cities, Cape Town and Nelson Mandela Bay's murder rates, peaked in 2006 and 2007 and then declined by 2010-2011. But after that, their trajectories diverged. Nelson Mandela Bay's murder rate stabilized for several years, but then rapidly increased in 2015 and 2016.
0: This violent trajectory has been influenced by changes in government.
1: Throughout our research, there has been persistent allegations that some gangsters in Nelson Mandela Bay have made moves to capture local government contracts and tenders. What essentially happens is that gang bosses have registered companies and they have relationships with powerful politicians like ward councillors and even more senior officials who then assist them in obtaining government tenders. This however results in a quid pro quo relationship because politicians may arrange a tender for a gang in exchange for the gang services.
0: Rukshana, have there been any arrests or successful prosecutions of officials that have engaged with these gangs in recent years?
1: There has been a few successful prosecutions, particularly within law enforcement. So where members of the police have been found guilty and arrested for aiding gang members.
0: What measures are being taken to break up the symbiotic relationship between gangs and politics?
1: Are efforts, and there has been efforts from law enforcement, but this issue is something that requires a multidisciplinary approach, an all-inclusive approach. And so we need various actors involved, not only law enforcement.
0: That was Rukshana Parker, an analyst at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. In Zimbabwe, Large numbers of the population are employed in the informal sector. The nation's gold industry is no different. Over one million people in Zimbabwe rely on informal mining to make a living. But the informality of the sector is not welcomed by all. Though gold prices soared on the international market during the COVID-19 pandemic, Zimbabwe's artisanal miners struggled to move gold down the supply chain because of lockdowns, travel restrictions and border closures. This resulted in an oversupply of gold and a drop in local gold prices. Disruptions caused by COVID-19 also exacerbated endemic instability in the sector, caused by violence and political patronage.
3: Unfortunately, what's also happening across Africa and a lot of the world is that Increasingly comprehensive mining legislation is being adopted, which is closing the space for informal mining.
0: Marcina Hunter is a senior analyst at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime.
3: And making a lot of what we would have thought was informal mining technically illegal. And so while the mining operations themselves aren't changing, the legal frameworks are, and it's making it more difficult for these mining operations to engage with formal actors. And it's kind of pushing them into the criminal sphere and further into the influence of criminal actors.
0: Masina, what is the value and the scale of informal gold mining in Zimbabwe?
3: It's really difficult to say, we, but from what we see with production and trade figures, it's probably at least in the hundreds of millions of US dollars. Official trade figures, um, SGM in Zimbabwe, produced 17.5 tons of gold in 2019. And it's thought that about 50% of illegal and informal mining production is lost to smuggling. So you're probably seeing about that much gold also going through illegal supply chains and being smuggled out of the country.
0: How much is the formal sector losing to
3: informal mining? The... Formal mining sector is not making huge losses due to informal mining because what happens is, is that the formal mining sector is largely large scale mining companies. And so these informal miners aren't really taking away profits from them. There is some overlap in when they're mining on their concessions and there can be some conflict there, but How informal or illegal mining tracks from the formal gold sector is that the gold produced by these operations isn't sold within formal channels. And so royalties aren't paid on it. It doesn't really achieve the same development impacts that it could. And these are non-renewable resources. So once they're gone, they're gone. And there's not really a second chance for Zimbabwe or other governments, to tax this production and really benefit from the country's resources.
0: Who are the miners, and how important is informal mining as a source of livelihoods?
3: Miners are usually local community members or migrants, and they tend to be more vulnerable populations, lower socioeconomic populations. And so ASGM or... Informal or illegal gold mining is really important as a livelihood option. And this is becoming more important as agricultural productivity is going down as a result of climate change with the coronavirus and the impact on service sectors. Those sectors are seeing high levels of the unemployment. And so ASGM really provides a social safety net for these people in vulnerable populations. But what happens is, is that you have this dichotomy where really large numbers of people are reliant on it and it is and has the potential to be a catalyst for development. But it's then instead exploited by criminal actors who perpetuate the conditions, undesirable conditions and kind of thwart the development potential of the sector.
0: Is there an association between criminal actors and politicians in the informal gold mining sector?
3: Allegedly, it's linked to quite high actors within the government and politicians who have been exiled from the country have said that some very high-ranking politicians are linked or have been engaged in the sector.
0: GI interviews with miners and gold buyers unearthed accusations of corrupt control over the gold trade led by members of the Zimbabwe African National Union Patriotic Front, or ZANU-PF, political elite.
3: We've heard pretty pervasive reports for a number of years that the ZANU-PF has a pretty tight hold over the gold sector in Zimbabwe. Some miners or other participants would say that it's really difficult, if not impossible, to enter into mining without the blessing of the ZANU-PF. So if you're a miner, you may have to pay a local official small payments or even large payments to mine. Or if you're a trader, you may have to pay them payments as well. And there's also allegations of XANU-PF members actually owning mining operations or being involved in the gold trade themselves. And one element that does enable them to, I think, have An advantage in the sector is their access to cash, U.S. dollars. In buying gold, the local currency isn't valued as high as U.S. dollars or even the ability to get the local currency. And so having that access to cash, both local currency and U.S. dollars, enables political actors to buy large amounts of gold where others may not be able to.
0: Elites maintain power over profitable gold mining sites through the use of machete gangs. If a miner discovers a lucrative site, they must share their earnings with senior politicians to secure protection.
3: It is alleged that the machete gangs are funded by politicians and that these same kind of groups or gangs can be used around elections and uh, voting intimidation. And so that's the link between politicians and gangs. And what you saw with the crackdown on machete gangs is that a lot of the members either received tip-offs that law enforcement was coming. And so they would not be there when they came, came or when they were arrested. They were released from jail or bailed out fairly quickly due to links to influential individuals. I think the links between machete gangs and law enforcement in our army are less obvious um, and not as strong as what was reported about the links between political actors and machete gangs.
0: Marcina, how are machete gangs instrumentalized by political elites to instill fear in minors?
3: The rise in machete gangs, especially at the end of 2020, some people estimated that the death toll was over and ran into the hundreds. And so what the machete gangs do is they terrorize mining communities and mine sites, and they use different tactics to terrorize miners as well as collect profits from them. So there were some allegations that they were targeting female miners, and so Informal, non-violent miners were afraid to mine because of these gangs. And what they would do is they can either take over a mine site and mine it themselves, or more frequently it was reported that they would force miners to give them their ore or pay them the money or give them the gold that was produced from the mine sites.
0: In an effort to quell violence committed by machete gangs, The Zimbabwean police launched Operation Chikorokoza Ngachepere in January 2020. While the operation led to the arrests of around 52,000 people by that September, thousands of gold miners were arrested for trivial offenses.
3: Unfortunately, the operation probably wasn't as successful as it could have been because it targeted all informal mining, not just the machete gangs and violent miners. So the result was a large amount of arrests and fines, but it tended to be for less egregious offenses, like unlicensed mining or that sort of thing, rather than violence. And so informal miners were twice victimized, once with the machete gangs and then again with the crackdown. Whereas I mentioned earlier, the members of the machete gangs due to alleged political protection were not really, the crackdown didn't have much of an impact on their activity in bringing the violence to an end.
0: Marcina, is there any hope that the high-ranking criminal actors within the illegal mining space will ever be brought to justice?
3: I think as greater Media and NGO reporting and sheds light on their involvement in the sector, it will better enable the international community and trade partners to effectively respond. What this means in practice may be more direct sourcing from informal mining operations by private sector actors or other governments putting pressure on high-level political actors. Will this be easy? I don't think so. We've seen a lot of, if you look at attempts to regulate the diamond sector, which have also been ongoing for quite some time, that has not had, I think, the level of success we would have liked to see in Zimbabwe. So I think there are ways it can be done but it definitely is a challenge and will require lots of investment and in long-term engagement and addressing corruption and impunity in the country.
0: That was Massina Hunter, a senior analyst at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime.
2: The procession of notorious Cape Town gang boss Ernest Lustig Solomon has reached the Hermana Cemetery Solomon was shot and killed in Boxburg Gauteng in November, it was the second attack for the year after he and his son were shot in May
0: Ernie in Lustig Solomon reigned for decades as one of South Africa's most notorious gangsters. Solomon survived assassination attempts before but last year, on November 20th his luck ran out
2: he was in Johannesburg, in Boxburg, on the east of Johannesburg in November, and he was driving with some family members. And a Ford Ranger stopped in front of his vehicle. He was driving a BMW. The Two men got out. They were armed with firearms and started shooting at the car. Some reports saying that they actually shot through the roof of the car because they assumed that the vehicle was armor-plated. The photograph circulated on social media on that Friday afternoon showing how Solomon was kind of slumped behind his wheel and he still had his seatbelt on. He was wearing shorts and a, and a brown anorak. And it was quite a um, poignant image.
0: Mandy Wiener is a journalist, a talk show host and an author.
2: You have this guy who had become notorious. He A movie was made about him and he was known as Lustach. And here he was that he had been slain in a very, very violent way. Police have still not arrested anyone as far as I'm concerned, but it was quite evidently a hit and he was the target. There's no doubt about that.
0: There are many theories behind Solomon's murder, but what is glaringly apparent is this high-ranking gangster's death has left a void in the Western Cape's illicit economy.
2: Ernie Lustig Solomon was described very much as a veteran gangster. You know, somebody who uh, was quite well known in gang circles, particularly in Cape Town. He achieved notoriety as the leader of the Terrible Josters, which uh, is a gang in Cape Town, but it has allegiances to the 28s and he was he was really considered as one of the main gang leaders particularly in the late 1990s some reports even saying that he was held in such high regard that he was referred to as the beginning of the number and the end of a, of the number and that's a reference of course to prison gang culture in South Africa where many prisoners are affiliated with a number which is a gang But then he also became a rapper, he was an actor, and in 2013 a movie was even made about him called A Lucky Man. He was seen as reformed in in some sense, but then having returned again to the gang world.
0: Mandy, what was the scope of Ernie Solomon's criminal enterprise in the Western Cape?
2: don't know for certain exactly what uh, what he was involved in. There's lots of associations with the Abalone illegal trade. In fact, one of the suggestions around his death was that he had gone into witness protection and that he was going to testify. And there was a fallout with a nephew of his, that they were fighting over the Abalone trading routes in Hermanus, just outside Cape Town. So that's the suggestion of the main influence that he was linked to. There are also suggestions that he was involved in networks that were trading in tick or other contraband as well, which had become quite established. So we know that the gangs in Cape Town are often involved in the trading of tick or other contraband, other kinds of drugs, even illegal tobacco. And Abalone is very prominent as well.
0: Seeing as Solomon was such a prominent gangster, did he have links to powerful groups and individuals, perhaps even in the realm of politics?
2: Yeah, so he was seen as very much as one of the kind of big bosses or grand, like, dons of the gang, along with somebody like Cyril Bierke, who was shot dead in, in 2011. So he was seen as part of that old guard that was very influential in the world of the gangs, you know, along with people like Stachy, for example, who was also shot dead recently. So his death and that of Stachy's was seen as the removal of the old guard. And then you've got this new grouping that is emerging a younger brand of gang boss that's attempting to wrestle control of this very highly contested environment. And all of that comes down to power to influence. Many of them uh, have got a lot of influence in terms of their networks with the police. We see very close ties between the, the gangs and with very senior police officers. In fact, the lines are often very blurred where you have police officers working for gangs and gang members acting as informants for the police. And according to to most of the reports, Ernie Lustig was in witness protection and was a source for the police. So I think that over decades of being involved with the gangs and rising to the position that he was in, he would have had uh, very deep connections and tentacles into those corridors
0: of power as well. The police have yet to arrest anyone related to Solomon's murder, but have any suspects been identified? And what might have been the motive for his murder?
2: So the truth is that often what happens is with these assassinations that are carried out by professionals, and we see more and more of them happening in Johannesburg particularly, is that people are never really arrested. It's that they are carried out by professional assassins. And it's very rare that we see people actually being taken into custody and if the shooters are ever arrested, the people who hire them are almost never prosecuted or brought to book. And a motive we still don't know, a lot of the reports speculated that it had to do with the Abalone smuggling routes, the poaching territory around Claremont and the Cape Town harbour, that there was this fight between the terrible Justice gang over Abalone trading in Khansbae and Hamanas. So... That seems to be what it was about, but we don't know for certain exactly what the motive was.
0: Considering how powerful he was and the extent to which he terrorized particular communities, do you think that people are safer now that he is dead?
2: I mean, It's a tricky one because we see this kind of Robin Hood relationship existing often between gang leaders and regular citizens. We saw the same thing recently with Teddy Mafia in Durban when he was killed where the community came out to seek retribution by killing his attackers. So often there's there's a kind of relationship of reliance between communities and and gang bosses. But I think if you look at it closely, the communities would be better off without any kind of gang influence whatsoever.
0: A number of assassinations of prominent gangsters have taken place in recent years. Teddy Mafia, Rashid Stachy, Cyril Bierke. Mandy, should we anticipate more high-profile killings of gang leaders in the coming months or across this year?
2: We saw a lot of disruption happening over the past few years with this emergence of, of a new leadership and a new generation. I think we will undoubtedly continue to see more assassinations. We saw a lot of assassinations happening in Joburg over the last two or three year period related to Serbian organized crime. We see plenty of assassinations relating to the taxi industry, to the drug industry. And unfortunately, you know, the biggest problem we have is that many of these are carried out by professional assassins, either homegrown or brought in from overseas, And we just do not have the intelligence capacity to get to the bottom of that, to either track them down or to preempt them. And in many cases, we have a situation where the police are even involved themselves. And we see now from the shooting of Charles Kinnear, the investigator in Cape Town, just how deep that that problem lies and how dangerous it is for the police that are even investigating these assassinations to try and stem the flow of blood.
0: That was Mandy Weiner, journalist, talk show host and author. 2020 was a monumental year for Southern Africa. Zimbabwe's informal and illegal gold market, which has been in flux in recent months, due to the impact of the coronavirus pandemic, saw a surge of violence by gangs linked to members of the political elite who exercise corrupt control of gold mining sites. The assassination of gang leader Ernie Lustig Solomon, a significant event, not only because Solomon was a powerful figure in the Western Cape underworld, but also because his killing is emblematic of wider shifts in dynamics of control between gangs in the region. And government mismanagement coupled with corruption fed into a steady increase of violence in Nelson Mandela Bay. These massive shifts at the end of 2020 laid the foundation for what illicit crime will look like in the year to come. That concludes this episode of Africa and the Global Illicit Economy with the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. Thank you to our guests, Rukshana Parker, Marcina Hunter and Mandy Wiener. For more on this episode, visit www.globalinitiative.net and take a look at the Civil Society Observatory of Illicit Economies in Eastern and Southern Africa, Risk Bulletin No. 14. You can also listen to previous episodes as well as other podcasts from the Global Initiative. This episode was produced by Alexandra Sahai-Williams, and I'm your host, Lindim Tongana.